Hello, everybody. My name is Rob O'Sell, filling in for Tracy Lee for another episode in our series about engineering leadership. Today, I'm here with Heather Giovanni, VP of Engineering of Data Infrastructure at Hewlett Packard Enterprise. Heather, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. It's Friday, so yay. Yes, Friday is the time that we're recording this, which is always a great time. Um, you know, let's dive right in. To start out, I'd love to kind of hear a little bit about your role at Hewlett Packard Enterprise. Can you kind of explain uh, what this data infrastructure piece is uh, that you, you work in and kind of what that entails? Yeah, yeah. So I'm VP of Engineering of Data Infrastructure. So data infrastructure is the primary storage software stack. So I have another peer partner that builds the hardware and then I do bring up and all the software that sits on top of that storage array. And then I work with another partner who offers the manageability and does the cloud managed. So basically HPE's storage arrays, um, the Electro MP comes out of my group and I have dev and QA and infrastructure. That's awesome. You know, one of the topics that I love to ask leaders is always kind of how did you arrive at this area of engineering, this part of Hewlett Packard Enterprise's tech stack? Has this always been uh, a passion of yours? Is this just a happy accident? How, how did you kind of end up in this division of the company? Well, that's um, funny. I'm actually haven't been in storage for a really long time. I've been in storage here for going over a little more than a year, but I have been in the embedded space for most all of my career. So just about over 20 years, um, I actually worked extensively in HPE's networking group, the Aruba um, group doing their wired switching um, and more recently moved to storage. But the embedded space has been sort of my home um, for my entire career. Um, I love the challenge of it. I think it's just really interesting. It's, it's a little bit of a niche inside the tech industry. Yeah, if, if you could tell me a little bit about that, like, you know, the embedded space, at least as far as I understand it, you know, it has some, some some restrictions that, you know, that I'm sure you'll tell us about. But like in a world where we feel like, you know, every year we're buying a new multi-terabyte phone and, you know, bigger and bigger things. I think I saw a thing on uh, Twitter where people were saying, you know, why does this mobile app need to be 500 megabytes <laughs> big, you know, and things like this nature? Can you kind of walk us through the, the engineering challenges that you and your team are facing kind of in this yeah. space? Yeah, I think, well, and I think it was interesting when I first graduated, I actually started at another company doing software um, and it was circa 2000. So the web was huge. And so basically a lot of data back, uh, database backends and web front ends. Um, and it was really um, interesting in the company that I was at, it was fun, but it was um, was getting a little bit, set like i'd only been there a year and so i was talking to a friend of mine i'd gone to university with and said yeah i don't know if this is really the right place for me i feel like it's a little bit repetitive um and a lot of the the projects we were making were like the same you know a different data model on the database but a new front end and then uh you just kind of it was a little bit of copy and stamp a bit and he's like oh you should come over to procurve um it's it's the networking group and i said you know hey that's great so i interviewed and got the job um and it was really it was a little bit jarring because i went from writing you know, Cold Fusion and JavaScript and SQL to writing C procedural. And of course, the first thing they gave me was chassis manager with like line card software update, LEDs and fans, which was like just a big jump for me. Um, but it was really interesting. And I think the thing that I learned to love almost immediately was the constrained environment. Um, it wasn't enough to just solve the problem to code up a solution. 
It mattered how much resources you took. It mattered how long you took to do it. Um, and then I kind of watched some people take that to the extreme. Um, and then they would write code that I literally could not, like it would take, you know, it's like the kind of code you can't really read back, right? Because it's been optimized within an inch of its life and for maximum usage. Um, but you take these systems that have these CPUs and memory that you, you go and it takes you, especially at the time, both uh, on the Aruba side, we had custom ASICs. So basically you'd have an inception of a program. Two years later, you'd see an ASIC, you know, another year and a half later, you'd have a release. So you're like three and a half years into the life cycle of that processor or that memory before you even hit the market. And then the market expects you to live for seven years. Um, and so that's a, that's a really interesting thing. And, and, you know, your point about the mobile phones and upgrading, it's like, yeah, um, you know, I can understand sometimes why some of the vendors really want you to move forward and, and get, you know, more memory, more processing, because it really opens up more doors on the software side, but learning that constrained environment and that balance, um, I think it's, I think it's a really interesting, difficult engineering problem that I've really enjoyed. Yeah, and I, I kind of want to push in that a little bit more because that to me, I feel like some people and some leaders that are listening to this are going to say, okay, yeah, you got to maybe pay a little bit more for iterations of engineering to trim some bytes off of the final package or, you know, tighten up a, a loop or whatever, just get some principal engineers in there and give them a little bit extra time. But, you know, it, you were mentioning that it kind of things that people take for granted when you have space options that you have on the table to be able to uh trade off maybe some some inefficiencies for some efficiencies in other areas sort of don't work could you kind of explain some more about how like what that means in this embedded space yeah so so oftentimes in embedded you have to have a really strong understanding of the customer outcome Right, um, so you can kind of go in and say, here's a technical problem, here's how we can solve it. And, and I've always said that you take a bunch of smart ICs and technical folks, you put them in a room, um, there might be 10 ways to solve the problem. Four of them, they're gonna agree right after that are terrible. Like no one's gonna argue that. Um, but those other six, right? That's really where you, you dig into the nuance of that and you start to look at, you know, you balance between what the business or the product manager is asking for, the requirements, what the customer could want, but then what the customer's really gonna do, right? Because you want to perform really well. And so oftentimes those trade-offs in, in scale and performance, um, you have to be very mindful because you, you with an embedded system, you might have to be chasing like uh, an RFP. You might have to have a data sheet that has certain things in it, but then you also have what the user's actually gonna do. Right, and so sometimes those align and sometimes they don't. Um, sometimes you get the one customer that says, oh, actually you published it, so I'm gonna test it and you need to do these things. And and so, um, you know, I've always said that you can, you know, that that scale and that simplicity, like that performance, like they're, they're, all, they're all parts of the same sort of levers. And you really wanna find that sweet spot where you, you maximize what you have from a hardware perspective, but you also make it quite usable for the for the user because they don't they don't users don't care how much memory you have or don't have. They don't care that you have to like take the box apart <laughs> to potentially um, touch a component. Um, for them, it's like, hey, it needs to solve the problem and and do what you need to do. So it's very easy to optimize when you're looking at microscopically what you're trying to solve, but you have to remind yourself to stand back and say, okay. What is the customer? What does this look like for the customer? How is this going to play out for the customer? 
okay, does this, this micro view that we had, does it still make sense? And I think we've been able to find places where the optimizations don't need to be there sometimes. Um, and then some places where we didn't put it there, we thought, we, we zoomed back and thought, oh, that's, that's not great. Like we need to go fix that. That means that the customer might be waiting, you know, four seconds and that's an eternity. And so I think that really plays back into the requirements and customer expectations a lot. You know, I know enterprise software in general gets sometimes a bad rap. I was watching sort of a humorous video that was talking about enterprise fizzbuzz, and it was like <laughs> tens of thousands of lines of Java with all these different uh, constructors and factories put together. And, you know, obviously we're talking about this embedded space to be quite the opposite, but I, I find this idea that part of the reason that enterprise software gets that way is because of the sort of the the wealth of wisdom that's built up in that system, the, the you know the, the variety of use cases it has to handle, the, the fact that we want to have redundancy in our in our knowledge bases, um, but yet you're constrained. So, like, how as an engineering leader in this type of organization are you striking that balance both yourself and in the standards that you're giving to your leaders and to their teams? How do you build an engineering culture that can respect both? optimization, but yet still having this mind towards, uh, you know, this, this sort of ability to sort of broadly support something. Yeah. So again, I'm going to take it back to the customer, um, and the industry that you're in. Right. Um, I would say there are some industries that tolerate complexity of configuration better than others. Um, so like if my mom's going to use it versus, you know, my daughter, like the difference of sort of how they approach and what they're willing to touch and configure and, and their familiarity with the product obviously is quite different. Customers are the same way, right? And so in the embedded space, I think networking a lot, um, you know, Cisco has set a standard for some of the UI and, and how the interaction works. And there's the CCNA and the CCIE and these certifications that you can get. Um, and it gets quite complex, right? Um, even storage, same idea. You have this interface. It, it becomes quite complex. Um, I spent some time at Palo Alto Networks. The firewall, very complex, right? They, there's a knob for everything because the more, the longer it's been in existence, the more people have needed it to be fine-tuned for their needs. And so you add that complexity into the, the user configuration and it, it optimizes that backend, right? So you're using that backend, you know, just... If I have a, a TCAM table, for instance, and it's only got so many entries, I can now get to a place where I can say, okay, I'm gonna let the customer tell me whether they're gonna do um, mostly L2 or L3 hosts. And I'm gonna, I'm going to divvy up that table accordingly. Um, I'm gonna give that as a configuration option, right? So that optimization almost flies directly in the face of sort of the simplified approach, right? So a lot of tech is trying to simplify for people so that it's not complicated. You know, you have a wizard to ask you a couple of questions and then it goes off and it gives you, you know, for the 80%, mostly what you want. And so that's, that's really where that balance is between those two. I think it really depends on the industry. It depends on the customer base. And then it also depends on your competition, right? Who's really setting the bar? I mean, if you come along and make things wildly more complex, than your competition, but you allow your customer to save dollars, like maybe you you might be successful in that, you might not, right? That's a, that's a lot of market research that needs to be done to say, okay, if I give you this system that allows you to fine tune these things, yes, the, co the complexity of that configuration is higher, but now you know that every 
gig of memory that you've purchased is being most optimally used. Um, and I think that's just where where we are in it's a it's a pendulum that goes back and forth, right? It's like it's the same as um, distributed and centralized. Oh yeah, complexity and simplification has a similar back and forth. I, I feel like they they get more complex because they want to be specialized and they want to be optimized, and then it gets to be too much, and then you'll see you'll see a lot of like you know um, unified. UI, a single pane of glass, like some of the buzzwords that come around to say, okay, let's let's make it easier for everybody and bring it back the other way. Um, and then it kind of works for a little bit until like the one size fits all that starts to to grade. And then you kind of go back towards, okay, let's optimize and, and fine tune. Um, and I think it goes sort of back and forth um, just in general in the, in the technical industry. I like that, like folding sheets of metal onto a blade or something like that, right? Like each one, you got to yes. kind of go through that cycle of seeing what you can get away with and then pulling back with lessons learned and then yeah. you know that kind of thing that's really interesting how do you in your organization sell the vision and the impact of what people are doing because on the one hand this makes a ton of sense to me i mean like every bite you can save every you know cycle you can shave off a cpu makes a wild difference when multiplied millions of times across millions of devices but at the same time, you're also working in what are components in perhaps larger systems or integrated in larger systems that a customer has. So how do you get people, continue to get people motivated to, to shave those bites or to, to take that pendulum and, and to really you know, care about that? Like, how do you sell that? Yeah, well, I, honestly, it goes back to the solution that we give to the customer. And, and I do try to make it, um, relevant to the customer's cost um you know the cost the customer is very cost sensitive usually um the less memory they can buy the less ports they can buy you know the, the further that they can stretch it right the more flexibility they have in the systems that they purchase the longer they can make them last which means we have to then absorb that complexity um and so oftentimes it's about you know just letting the engineers know hey you know we need this to be faster or we need this to be optimized um, it seems like a very small thing, like for where you're looking, like, you know, it's, is this 10 milliseconds or five? It doesn't seem like anything, but here's how it plays out, you know, um, in, in the thing. And I think we've seen this a lot in, you know, number of drives um, for the storage units, right? They can buy less devices. They can take up less rack space, which means they're powering less devices, which means they're saving more energy. Like there, there's this whole ripple effect of sort of how, the the capacity density comes into play same thing with networking right number of ports a number of things um so the infrastructure the customers need um it's just it's looked at a lot um because the reality is a customer wants to focus on their problems right their business that infrastructure is supposed to be there to allow them to run their business and so um they don't want to pull their hair out about whether they need you know 10 terabytes or, or not, they, they want to be able to say, hey, this is the problem I'm trying to solve. Um, can you sell me something that has the flexibility for future-proofing me three, four, five years from now based on you know this kind of growth trajectory? And so I think having those kinds of conversations with the engineers to help them, to help them see the administrator's view and you know, how the customers look at that um, I think it makes it really, really helps, right? So as we build good systems, then our customers spend less money configuring and optimizing and doing it and more time on their business, 
which then allows them to be more successful, which means they're more likely to come back to us. It's, it is really exciting to be at that first domino in the cascading set of dominoes and just going, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like the butterfly effect sort of writ large that you're just sort of like, yeah, we are, we are the butterfly's wings, but there is a tsunami on the other side of the, the business world that, that we yeah. just caused. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to take a brief moment here to acknowledge today's sponsor, This.Labs. This.Labs is a development consultancy that is trusted by top industry companies, including Stripe, Xero, Wikimedia, DocuSign, and Twilio. This dot takes a hands-on approach by providing tailored development strategies to help you approach your most pressing challenges with clarity and confidence. Whether it's bridging the gap between business and technology or modernizing legacy systems, you'll find a breadth of experience and knowledge you need. Check out how This.Labs can empower your tech journey at this.co. That's T-H-I-S-D-O-T dot CO. And thank you, of course, to this dot for allowing me, uh, sponsoring me to be able to do this as well. So with that, back to our conversation. Now, Heather, we spent a lot of time talking about the scale effects of the technology and that your teams are, are working on and, and how that kind of rolls up, bites rolls up into these dramatic impacts and, and these dramatic effects. But, you know, similarly, companies at different levels uh, can operate very differently. Obviously, Hewlett Packard Enterprise is at a very large scale, but I believe we were talking about just before this that you have had experience at extremely smaller scales and at many steps in between. And I'm kind of wondering if you can kind of introduce to us kind of your perspective on what it means to 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 be at these different levels of companies along along the way. Yeah. So the way I kind of think about companies. Um, how they're structured and how they scale. Um, it's like a system. And so there's a there's a pivot point where a company gets to a certain size and and some of the things that served them before will no longer serve them. Um, and, and I don't think that there's a hard and fast formula, but I've I found a hundred to be a an interesting pivotal point for engineering size, engineering team size. Um, I found five hundred to be a very interesting pivot point for engineering size. And then like a thousand, like those points I've seen as being, um, you know, really clearly demarked um, for a lot of companies in terms of everything about what the engineer does. So in the same way your system scales and you have a technical system, you have like a living system with the people and the processes um, and the technology and all those kind of overlay. And then you also have multiple variables in there that influence either this works at this scale or this doesn't work at this scale. Um, you know, in, in just simple things, even like your paychecks and how, how <laughs> pay gets done, right? Like some tools are great when there's only 10 of you, but some tools will absolutely fall apart once there's a hundred of you, right? Um, so basically everything you use to sort of get the job done and keep everyone together, um, each of the tools that you use in there has a sweet spot um, a, a range for that sweet spot. And when you look at a company that's that's pivoting up or, or moving to the next level or trying to get to IPO or whatever it is, right? Whatever their next goal is um, or trying to get that 25%, you know, um, market share so that they can kind of have um, more velocity in the market, then you look at how they get there, right? And you say, okay, which of the tools are working for us? Which of the tools aren't working for us? you know, what's hanging us up? What's keeping our engineering velocity back? Um, is it build time? 
Is it the defect tracking tool? Is it, you know, whatever it is, right? Like there's just hundreds and thousands of tools that we all use for everything um, day in, day out. You have to look at that at each size point and kind of say, does this work? Um, also, you know, organizational structure, like how, you know, you can go pretty flat for a pretty long time, but mm -hmm. then at some point you yeah. kind of have to bring in a little bit of hierarchy or else you end up with meetings where everyone doesn't know who's in charge. And they're like, who's making this call? And, and instead they all do this consensus thing where you have the same conversation like three times. And I'm like, yeah, that doesn't work. Like you have to say this person's in charge of this call. Like you guys owe each other a meeting to discuss the, you know, the ins and outs and pros and cons, but at the end of the day, so-and-so is going to make a call. Um, and you know, that's how you behave in, in sort of bigger companies to, to keep things moving along. Um, so I think you would look at all of those There's probably like, you know, there's, there's thousands of tools, but there's probably like 20 main variables across the, the businesses. And as you pivot from like that ultra small to small, like we can, we can subdivide all the, we can name all the <laughs> pieces of which size you are. Right. And, and in some cases it'll work in some cases it won't but there's no actual formula, right? Because um, one of the things I say a lot and I love is I will absolutely give guidance, but guidance is just that, it's guidance. It's not rules, mm -hmm. rules and processes for lowest common denominator. Guidance is we are going this direction. If you see a reason that this doesn't make sense, then you owe it to escalate and have that conversation. Um, so, so guidance is meant to help us go in a direction so that like 80% of the time you can just follow the guidance and it's good. Um, but there's always exceptions and bits and pieces and you have to balance how many times you take exception um, also based on size. Like the, the bigger you are, maybe the less exceptions you can take. The smaller you are, the more exceptions you can take. And so to me, everything's sort of this swinging pendulum of, of where it falls. Uh, I think I, I mentioned it's like a multi-dimensional array of, of and complexity that I, I have in my head, but I, I've never tried to write write down. <laughs> it's been a while since I took that math class. Yeah. So I'm not sure if I'm following, but it's, you know, I've been in some of those lower level transitions and, and been a part of you know, leadership teams that were surprised at, for example, a sudden burst of, of turnover when you made a pivot point from being able to have a team full of generalists who wanted to really have that entrepreneurial feel of really making an impact and they suddenly get replaced by a set of either specialists and career people who weren't looking to have an ownership stake in something, but really wanted to have a solid career and, and make a difference with a specialized tool set. And I think sometimes, and as you were saying, when, when suddenly these variables as a leader, you've been honing them and you've been work, tempering them and you've been working them and all of a sudden a different set are active and the ones you have don't really move the lever anymore. How, how would you advise either from your own experience or just, you know, how you understand it, how leaders should sort of recognize that, that moment, that sort of wily coyote moment when suddenly things aren't working the way that they expect and, and how they can start to identify what's, what they need to now be paying attention to. Yeah. I, I think this comes with study, like as a leader, and I spend a lot of time trying to do skip levels and, and understand like deeply what's going on in my org. Otherwise, I'm, I'm pretty disconnected. But if you if you stay connected um, to the people and sort of what drives them, um, I think you'll find the problem more easily. And then you can articulate. And I've been in places where, you know, I've had people who were part of a startup and it grew to a certain size. And I told them, I said, you seem unhappy. Um, and it seems to me that this company is at a place now 
where it's not where it was when you started and it, it doesn't actually feed you the way you want to work, which is, you know, you, you, your favorite part of your career was, you know, the 20 people sitting in the room together, you know, just creating, you know, enormous amounts of code and really getting it done. Um, like that's not going to happen at a certain size. Like there's going to be processes um, at a certain size and at a certain um, level of, of market success. And if that's what drives you, that's totally okay. Um, and I think this is the part where if leaders um, are clear about where they're going and what they need from their people, a lot of people will stay. A lot of people will stay simply because it's something different. And they're like, oh, you, you want that now and it's not this? Okay, great. As long as you're clear about the roles and responsibilities and you allow me the space to learn, then we're good. Um, and then some of them will be like, no, I'm out. Like, this is not what I want. I really, I want to, I want to be at a startup or I want to be, you know, at a more mature company, whatever it is. Um, I think having the vocabulary around those variables and pieces that make that company, you know, operate at that size is super critical for leaders, especially if they're trying to get to growth, especially if they're trying to get to the next level. Um, they need to set that expectation. I, I find that engineers are actually really flexible if you if you plant the right seeds um, ahead of time. Like if you if you tell them where you're going, you kind of give the foreshadowing. If you, you set that up, um, I found that you get a lot less upset people when it kind of comes around, right? There'll still be some people who are like, wait, where'd that come from? And they didn't know. Um, but a lot of them are like, oh yeah, I kind of had a feeling. I'm like, you had a feeling because I kind of kind of put that in there for you. Um, so that you could be ready for that. Cause I think I think the the book, The Who Moved My Cheese, it's been so long since I've read that, but it reminds me of that is just kind of that sense of autonomy when things are changing out from under you. I think it's important to maintain that even as a company grows. That's really good. And also amazing parenting advice as well. Uh, <laughs> if you can project some of the changes that are happening ahead of your children. Uh, That's true. Also a great, a great opportunity. Um, well, wonderful. This has been an, an awesome conversation. I'm curious if you can just sort of let people know um, if they want to you know, connect with you or uh, figure out kind of where you are. Can you kind of let people know how they can connect with you in the future? Yeah, yeah. I am on LinkedIn. Heather Giovanni, I'm there. So reach out and you can find me. I actually, I don't do a lot of the social media. So I'm probably not a, as, as a hardcore techie. I kind LinkedIn's of the social from, media to be at these days. LinkedIn's, LinkedIn's the, the only one. one I really participate in. Um, so, so I would say um, I don't have an Instagram or anything like that. Um, but yeah, you can find me there. Well, wonderful. Well, that's going to be it for us today. Uh, Thank you to Heather for being our guest today. And thanks for each of you for listening. And we hope to see you all next time. So have a great day. Bye-bye. This program is presented by This.Labs, the framework agnostic consulting firm helping enterprises realize their technical goals through staff augmentation, consulting, project management, on-demand subject experts, training, and other professional services. Find out more at this.labs.com.